Tell you what, only Christians can sing about that kind of freedom, right? Man, I'll tell you what, it is so good to be emancipated from our sin and to know God and to live in that kind of joy and worship with hearts that love Him. Let's pray. Lord, what an absolute delight it is to gather with Your people and to sing Your praises, to proclaim Your goodness, to worship You in spirit and in truth. And we're asking God that right now you would take distraction from us. I pray that you would take me completely out of the way. And we're asking that as we open up your book, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. You'd bring transformation to our souls as we engage your holy word and you bring about maturity, growth, and worship in our lives. And so we're praying and asking this expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you guys can have a seat. Really good to see all of you here this morning. My name is Grant Call. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it is just a joy and delight to be able to have you with us. If you're new here, one of the things that we do is we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it passage by passage. We're really interested in what God has communicated to the world through the scriptures. And today we're in Ephesians chapter 3 as we make our way through this book. And I'd like to ask you this question as we get started. How do you make the most of your life? How do we do that? I mean, even the question itself, like, how do we make the most of our lives? Like, where in the world do you even turn to try to find an answer to a question like that? And yet, uh, we certainly, we don't want to waste our lives, right? John Piper has written an excellent book called Don't Waste Your Life. I want you to know, most people don't want to waste their lives. They realize, hey, you only have one of one life. So let's not waste it, but how do you make the most of it? When people start to think about making the most of their lives, oftentimes they start, well, I, I think that I probably need to, I need to accumulate some things. I, uh, maybe making the most of my life is to be able to have kind of my ideal life, whatever culture I'm in. Whatever they aspire to, why, if I have those things, I will have made the most of my life. Or perhaps if I just have a lot of wealth or prestige or accomplishments, if I could leave my mark in society, somehow I have made the most of my life. Maybe I've gathered enough toys. Or if I can just have the experiences of the elite, maybe why that would make my life meaningful. I'd make the most of it. Although those things can be well and good of their own, If you really want to make the most of your life, then you're going to want to have a relationship with God who has designed life. And in order to really enjoy people, why you need to be emancipated from selfishness and the sin that once kept you in bondage. Really, all of these things come through the gospel. If you really want to know the answer to this question, how do we make the most of our lives? We do so by this, when we treasure the gift of the gospel. You know, that's what the book of Ephesians is all about. How the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, brings about forgiveness of sins and a transformation of life for those who are trusting in him. It's like we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, like verses 8 and 9. We are, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And we who are saved, not by works, not by religious ritual, not by showing up at some sort of church or have something done to us, we're saved by grace 
We are, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We who are saved from our sins by grace, we are, by virtue of relationship with Jesus Christ, shaped by grace to manifest his likeness, these good works that he has prepared for us to do. So how do we make the most of our lives? That's what Paul talks about and gives us the answer to when we come to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is one very deeply personal uh, explanation of how to make the most of your life, and Paul outlines it for us. And the first thing you need to know about making the most of your life, if that's really what you want to do, then you want to treasure the gospel message entrusted to us. Take a look, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He begins by, first of all, pointing out, hey, listen, before I get in to the glories of the gospel, I want you to know that I am a prisoner, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So by this time, when Paul is writing, he has now been in prison for four years, two years in Caesarea, and now for about two years in Rome. He is writing as one who's incarcerated. And I want you to know just the the experience of prison itself and being completely uh, captivated and and not able to have any of your freedoms and not knowing what's happening next. Are you going to live or are you going to die? Is it going to be horrific? You have no idea what's coming. And yet Paul is not overwhelmed by his earthly circumstances, and that's because he has clarity as to his identity. How does he identify himself? He's a prisoner, but a prisoner of who? Of Christ Jesus. You see, he has a divine perspective on life. If you were just living on the here and now, and you were kind of governed by your circumstances, when you have negative circumstances, like circumstances like you're incarcerated, why, you have no hope, right? And you don't know what's going to happen to you? Friends, if you were just living for the here and now and you see yourself only at a horizontal level, don't be surprised that it leads you to discouragement and despair. But I'll tell you that if you have a vertical perspective, it'll keep you from a horizontal panic. And that's exactly what Paul has. He knows that he is a prisoner, not just of Rome, that's what he does. His fate isn't determined by jailers or some sort of Roman uh, soldier or ruler. He knows he's in the hands of God. He knows that in Christ, God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, how you see yourself influences how you live your life. Identity influences behavior. So if you see yourself as just a prisoner, well, you're going to act like it. Oh, it's terrible and there's no hope for me. But if you see yourself as a prisoner in Christ Jesus, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? The noted psychologist Viktor Frankl maintained this, that people can endure any what as long as they know, have a why. And he could speak with a lot of credibility on this, not just from research, but he himself was a survivor of the Holocaust. You can survive any what you're going through when you know the why. And he says, Paul says, listen, I may not be fully able to explain all of my circumstances and why I'm in it, but I do know that nothing that I'm going through is apart 
from me being in Christ. And I am trusting him. And he says then, verse 2, he says, You know, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, he says this, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. He says, I want you to know that I have been entrusted with the gift of God's grace, the, the gospel. And this word, uh, when he talks about stewardship, it has the idea of administration. It speaks of an official that oversaw the workings and the proceedings and the official activities of another, like an administrator who oversaw like all the farming operations of a particular person. He was an official that was charged with a responsibility, and he'd report back to his master or the person he was working for. Paul says, you know what? I've been entrusted with, like he says, verse 2, I'm a steward of God's grace. It was given to me for you. I have been given the gospel message not just for my own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And one day I will give an account for what I have done with the gospel. And so if you're asking like, well, hey, I'm pretty new to all this. Like, what, what does the word gospel even mean? The word means good news. And to just give you a definition, it is the good news that by grace, God forgives and redeems all who are broken over their sin, all who believe in the perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and receive eternal life as a disciple in his kingdom. The good news is that God has provided all that we need for salvation and life transformation through relationship with Jesus Christ. He not only forgives us our sins because Christ has paid the penalty of sin, which is death, he also has called us to be a follower. That's what a disciple, a student of Christ, to grow in his likeness and to manifest who he is. So how do you and I become a good manager of the good news? How do you become a good steward? Well, let me just tell you real simply. You, first of all, have to receive it. Have you really received Jesus Christ? You may know a lot about him. You may have some really nice Bibles. You may have been involved in church, perhaps for many, many years. But have you come to a place where you have really recognized your sinfulness and that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the one who has paid the penalty of sin, which is death? Have you received him? If you're going to be a good steward of the gospel, you have to receive the gospel. Second, you want to share the gospel, right? If, if your life has been transformed by the presence of Jesus, you and I have the privilege and the responsibility of sharing this good news with others. So if you want to be a good steward of the gospel, you want to receive the gospel, you want to share it, and third, you want to grow in it. You want to continue to focus and learn about what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus, to know his forgiveness, to realize you are free from guilt and shame that the Spirit of God now lives in our life, no matter how much we fail, even as Christians, right? Some of us made some terrible mistakes, right? But guess what? That's not our identity. We are broken over our sin, but we are trusting in Jesus Christ, and we move forward by faith. We are in league with Emmanuel, God with us, and our lives are different because of the presence of Jesus in our lives. Friends, this is the gospel, and we continue to grow in it. 
And if you really want to make the most of your life, if you're here today and you're saying like, count me in, I want to make the most of my life, how do I do it? Look at verses 1 and 2. We treasure the gospel message entrusted to us. It's just an ongoing treasure. Let me show you something else. If you really want to make the most of your life, you want to treasure the gospel mystery revealed to us. Man, and this is good stuff. Get ready. Paul is going to take us deep. And you you want to see what this looks like? He says, listen, you understand that I've been made a steward of God's grace. And verse 3, that by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So when we use the word mystery, it's as if like, well, something is super perplexing and we may never know why it's happening. So for instance, some of you are like, that describes like my kids. I have no idea why they're behaving this way. What are they thinking, right? Right? It's a mystery. We may never know, right? God only knows what's going on there, right? But that's not how the Bible uses the word mystery. The Bible uses the word mystery as something that has been previously unrevealed that now God reveals. Something unknown that now God discloses and gives details. And friends, that's what the gospel is. It is a mystery that has been revealed. And if you want to see what he's talking about here, he says, verse 5, which, uh, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets in the Spirit. That's exactly what a mystery is. Other generations, no idea. But now God has made known the glory of the gospel through his apostles and the holy prophets. Holy prophets that are not only speaking God's word, but reinforcing the apostolic message. Remember, Christ is the cornerstone, and God is laying a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so he says, this is a mystery that has now been revealed. And who's doing the revealing? It was made known to the sons of men as it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, the Spirit of God moving to give the Word of God. And then in case, like you weren't paying attention to the last half of Ephesians 2, and we've spent multiple weeks in it, he actually then once again describes this mystery. It's verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he says, this is the mystery that no one would have known. Now, let me just take you back. The Jewish people knew that God was going to somehow bless even the nations of the world through Abraham. Remember that? Genesis chapter 12. But as to what that would look like, they had no idea. They certainly understood that there was a Messiah coming, someone who is going to be a king, an eternal king, you can see that from 2 Samuel 7, who's going to be from the line of King David. And this is going to be one that's going to be some sort of suffering servant, yet he's going to have no end, no beginning, he's going to be eternal. But they thought, why, this is going to be a Messiah for the Jewish people. And they had a lot of different views as to how he was going to benefit the Jewish people, primarily to get the yoke of Rome off their necks. But the glory of the gospel is this, 
The gospel is not just for the Jews. It is even for the non-Jews. That's what Gentiles are. In fact, the mystery is this, that God, through the working of Christ, his death and resurrection, is going to unify in one body of believers, Jews and Gentiles, and they are going to come together as one. It is called the church. I want you to know, no one was thinking like that, and no one would have ever known that that was the plan until God revealed it to the apostles and to the uh, holy prophets. Now, let me just tell you what this looks like. Tony Evans, pastor, author, uh, founder of Urban Alternative, he writes this, God broke down the division between Jews and Gentiles, ending years of hostility. Through the gospel, both have been brought into one body of Christ, reconciled to one another. They are fellow partakers of grace on equal footing before God. If you've been brought into God's family through the blood of Christ, the color of your skin doesn't matter. Regardless of your race, you get the same spiritual DNA given to every other believer planted within you by the Spirit as soon as you are born into the family of God. We have the same Father and sit at the same table. Once you come into the body of Christ, you come as an equal There are no insignificant people in God's army. So you see, God's wisdom and God's plan is to unite Jew and Gentile, all non-Jewish people, together in one body. He is the God who is bringing about unity. The adversary, the enemy of God and the enemy of our souls, try to guess what his plan is. If God's plan is unity in Christ, what do you think his strategy is going to be? to blow it up. He is looking to create and to destroy unity wherever it may be found. Now, Satan simply cannot rob someone of their eternal salvation because that is a gift of grace. But I want you to know he can wreak all sorts of havoc on this unity that God is bringing about in his people and is expressed in local churches. And frankly, he is really good at it. Just look at the last 2,000 years. Yeah, there's some celebrations of unity that we can like, man, that was really great. But there's been a lot of hostility and divisions. You don't have to look 2,000 years. Just look at the last even two weeks. We're upside down. We have, quote unquote, Christians who are actually advocates of things that are absolutely contrary to the foundation of the apostles, the word of God, in absolute contradiction. On the other hand, we have folks like, no, we have to hold on to Christ and the cornerstone and the foundation. And it rips Christians apart. And friends, it can even happen in our church. I want you to know that God has a plan. And that plan is for, he is actually at work in his people. And he is demonstrating that it's no longer about racial identity. It's not like racial identity goes away, it's that it's no longer your primary identity. You see, we want to just, well, we got to put everybody in their categories, and we're going to be at animosity toward one another, and I want you to know, God says, listen, if you really want an answer to racial reconciliation, I'm it, he says. I have sent my son. God brings unity. And I want you to know, like, this is what is celebrated in heaven 
This is where we're going. When John gets the, the revelation of what is to take place in heaven, you remember that in the book of Revelation? Does he just see a homogenous group of people, like just a bunch of white people, and they're just all worshiping Christ, or just lots of Asians, and they know Jesus? No. What is it? It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It is the people of the world. In fact, you even see toward the end of the revelation, the kings of the world are bringing their glory into worship of the living God. That is God's plan to put his grace, his character on display through the diversity of people that have come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And friends, that means that if we treasure the gospel and the mystery that has been revealed, we're all about breaking down barriers through building bridges. We want to build bridges with people. It could start as simple as a handshake or a smile or inviting someone to your home. But we want to help people come to truly know Jesus. And once we come to know him, put the glory of God on display. That's what every local church is to be doing to put the grace of the gospel on display on how people treat one another, their sense of identity, purpose, the warmth of love, the sacrifice, the service, the generosity. Where does this all come from? God working through his people. Friends, this is the mystery that has been revealed. And the reality of Christ is seen by the unity of his people. If you're here today and you want to make the most of your life, Let me just tell you, this is how it's done. You treasure the gospel message that has been entrusted to you. And you treasure the gospel mystery that has been revealed to us. But notice how he concludes this very personal section. If you want to make the most of your life, treasure the gospel mission delivered to us. He says in verse 7, he says, Of this gospel of which, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God, God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. I was made a minister of this gospel of grace. It was something that has been given to me. I am a part of this mission. He is the one who's empowered me. You see, Paul was once the adversary and the enemy of Christians. Never forget that. Who was the guy leading the charge, uh, apprehending Christians, bringing them, separating them from families, tearing them apart, having them lose their jobs, and even seeing that they were incarcerated and even brought to death. Who was? This guy, the guy writing the letter, right? Who was, who was collecting coats when the very first person to ever die for the Christian faith? Remember Stephen? You know who was collecting coats that day? <laughs> this guy, Paul. But God and his grace rescued him out of his darkness and his self-sufficiency, self-righteous behavior. This guy was, he was religious, okay? Very religious. He was of the sect of the Pharisees. He was following all the rules that they had come. In fact, he saw himself as like living kind of like the perfect righteous life only to discover that this was a man-made righteousness. He talks about this in Philippians chapter 3 and it is like nothing, like dung, filthy rags, nothing because righteousness comes from Christ and Christ alone. And he says, I was made a minister, a person who is serving and helping people understand the gospel of grace. And he says, verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, 
This isn't some sort of false humility, friends. This is simple honesty. When you see the wretchedness of your behavior compared to the righteousness of God, he says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I was given this mission to preach to the non-Jewish people the unfathomable riches that are found in Christ. What kind of riches are we talking about? How about eternal forgiveness? God's unending love to be brought into his family, united in his kingdom, to be a part of his holy temple. Do you know that the unfathomable riches of Christ are wisdom? How to live well. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from God and his word. It's the unfathomable riches of Christ. To have security, identity, the assurance of heaven, the the infilling and indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, his word. These are the unfathomable riches that are found in Christ Jesus. And he says, it is for this reason that I have been actually put in charge to verse 9 and to bring to light what is the administration, the means of revelation of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden God who created all things. God had this hidden, but now he is making it known and he's actually doing it through me. Why? Because I'm on mission. And now get this. Look at what he's going to say next. I I told you this is going to go deep. Pretty sure you haven't thought about this in some time. He says, this is what the God who had hidden, created all things, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And you're like, What in the world is he even talking about here? Rulers and authorities, heavenly places. He's talking about the spiritual realm, the holy angels, and even the fallen ones. If you were to ask a hundred Christians, listen, why does the church exist? What sort of answers do you think you'd hear? Uh, Let's see. Well, the church exists. Oh, to worship God. Yes. Um, The church exists to... Why does the church exist? Oh, I, uh, to preach the Bible, um, to, oh, I remember what Jesus asked us to, to, to make disciples. Yeah, we, we exist to make disciples. Um, you know, we really exist for like fellowship. We're really good at eating, right? And so, yeah, the church exists for food and for us to be able to come together and we'll just call that fellowship, right? Uh, the church exists, oh, we're supposed to like go and maybe share the gospel with people that don't really know Jesus yet. And I want you to know, those are all right answers. Nothing wrong with any of that. Not even the food part, you know? But I don't think anyone would give the answer that we find here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Why does the church exist? We exist for all those things, but here's something that, that's going to blow your mind when you let it really settle in. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, the grand plan of God is to unite all things in Christ and to make known his plan to the angelic realm. The plan of God is to make, to demonstrate his wisdom, 
how his justice is unfolded, how Christ's righteousness reigns supreme in the lives of his people, how he can bring people from every sort of different background, from all sorts of wreckage and sin and wretchedness and bring them into forgiveness and to bring them into relationship with himself and relationship with one another, where they actually love one another, care for one another, serve one another, minister to one another, that the wisdom of God is demonstrated when the church is mobilized to do ministry, to share his likeness, his love, and his message in communities. It's the wisdom of God to display like people are praying in earnest because they know that only God can really change a heart or only God can make something happen. Where they give generously, like sacrificially, of their finances for the furthering of kingdom work, all of this is God's wisdom on display. He's uniting everything in Christ It is just like the Bible ends, and we see this picture of all things united in Christ. It's happening now in the church. And the angels, aligned with God, they rejoice. In fact, they actually have roles in ways that you and I will hardly ever understand. They are ministers and servants for those who are the elect, those who actually know God. And they work in profound and mysterious ways. But for the fallen angels, the demonic realm, They see that God is at work. His power is infinite. And even in all the wreckage that Satan seeks to to create in culture and bringing people into great bondage of darkness, God is able to bring them out of death and give them life in his son, unite them with the other believers, and actually accomplish his work in the world. Whoa, what's that? It is the wisdom of God. You know, I want you to see something here. This has always been part of God's plan. Look at verse 11. He says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was part of the eternal purpose of God. Everything that we just described, I want you to know that God had put this into motion and put out a plan even before Genesis 1.1. That tells us, wow, the Father is the one who decreed it, the Son implemented it, and the Spirit empowered it. God is following an eternal plan, that He is the one who designed it. And think of it, right now, we are experiencing it, and we're in the midst of it. And that's how it works. Like, for instance, when you came to church today, you know this, this building that you walked into? I want you to know, that we had a plan that we followed very closely. There were architects' plans, and we were always consulting the plans so it was to be built according to what the plans called for. Uh, That's how buildings are built. We didn't just like get together like, well, let's just throw up some steel, see what happens, lights here. Let's just throw some electrical wires. No, 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 no. There was a plan. If you know how to make a suit, you have a a plan. You don't just start cutting and sewing and see what happens, do you? No. If you're one of the really skilled individuals, and I am not in this category, but you can actually make a cake, whoa, like you can follow a recipe, and voila, it is awesome and delightful. You follow the plan, and that's exactly what God is doing. He has set a pattern in place before the foundation of the world. Do you see that? You might want to underline it. I have. It is in accordance with his eternal purpose. It's happening. You see, the role of the church in like the cosmic arena and the heavenlies is kind of like what happened in like the Olympics in 1936. 
the Berlin Olympic Games. There was a guy, you've probably heard of him, he was the German chancellor, a guy by the name of Adolf Hitler. Maniac. Insane. And in control. And at the 1936 Olympics, he and the Nazi party said, we are not having black people participating in these games. But he got quite a bit of pressure from the world and countries like, hey, listen, then we're not coming. We're going to boycott these Olympics. And so Hitler had a plan. All right, we'll let anybody come to my Olympics and I will showcase to the world white supremacy, the Aryan race. <laughs> I'll do it. And that was the plan. And it was known. And so the Americans decided they would come. And they brought with them uh, a sprinter. You may have heard of him. An African-American gentleman by the name of Jesse Owens. This guy was amazing. And I want you to know Hitler's plans were completely blown up. Not by the words of Jesse Owens, but by his actions. Jesse Owens was the first American ever to win four gold medals in a single Olympics. He won the 100 meters, 200. He was on the 4 by 100 and he won the long jump. And every single time, Jesse Owens stood on the top of that stand, and Hitler had to watch that. And he demonstrated that, listen, you want to see superiority? It was this African-American athlete. And the church is like that. The world has a plan of all of its devastation, how to keep people in the grips. It's superiority. You don't need any of that religion bit, and certainly not Jesus. God says, I want to show you my power on display. And it is called the local church. And that's what God is doing. And it is part of an eternal purpose. And notice what he says here. Verse 12. He says, in, he says, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So get this. The one who is, has an eternal plan the supreme, one, true, and only God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God, who has brought about this plan, who is the absolute supreme power, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, we have access to him at any time. Do you see that? We can, with boldness, and have confident access through faith in him. I want you to think about that for a minute. Think of some powerful folks in our world. Like, for instance, think of the President of the United States. I have this week. I, you know what? I would really like 10 minutes with the President of the United States. I would like to, especially after this week, like, what in the world are we thinking here? Have we thought this through? I would like to have a discussion. I only need 10 minutes. But I want you to know, I can't show up to the White House. I can't walk through the gate like, hey, it's all good. I just want to talk to the President. I just need 10 minutes. That doesn't happen, right? You're going to see me get, here's a little Pastor Grant. He got you know, hauled away here, right? You don't do that. You don't have access to the president. If I was to ever go there, why, there'd be a lot of things that have to take place, but not with God. I'll tell you who's really running the show and who is absolutely in control. It's God. And we, with boldness and confidence, can come to him at any time. In fact, he invites us to do, that, do so. And so he says, verse 13 in closing, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. He kind of ends where he be, began. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
You know all these difficulties and hardships in my life? All the sacrifices that I have made, the giving of myself, facing all sorts of hostility, getting beat up, left for dead, these are all part of his story of of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I don't want you to be upset about that. Do not lose heart at my tribulations, and they were many, because they're for your behalf. They're your glory. You can rejoice in these things, because you know why? I love God, and I love you, and I will willingly pour out my life as a sacrifice for you, because I treasure the gospel. I am making the most of my life. Chuck Swindoll was once asked, while he was on the campus of Dallas Theological Seminary, by a student, this question, of all the things the Lord has taught you over the years, does something stand out more than any other? So he started thinking back of his more than 70 years and more than 50 years in ministry, and he, he had this reply. He said, quote, nothing touches us that hasn't first passed through the fingers of God. Nothing. Friends, you need to know that no matter what you might be going through, it hasn't just happened. God is at work. You may not know why, and you may not even know why this side of eternity. And I personally, I have found this, that it's through difficulties that God has brought depth in my relationship. Just this week, I was reading through Psalm 119, and I came across Psalm 119, verse 71. It says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. See, when I face difficulty and challenges and things I don't understand, or sometimes I just feel like my feet are just knocked out from underneath me, that makes me hungry and thirsty for God, for truth, for His power, to understand His Word, and He provides it. And so, friends, remember what A.W. Tozer said? God never uses anyone greatly until He tests them deeply. He is probably preparing you for the great things that he's going to continue to work in your life. And so, friends, if you really want to make the most of your life, why you want to do what he's talking about here. You want to realize that he's given you the gospel, and this gospel mission is something that we are called to fulfill. This is your time. This is your generation. If you're sitting there and you're, you're just going to sit on your hands, and like, well, I don't want to take any risks, and, oh, you know, I just want to play it safe, and I certainly don't want to be inconvenienced, you might be wasting your life. If you want to make the most of your life, then treasure the gift of the gospel. I, when you treasure the gift of the gospel, you will actually look for opportunities for spiritual conversations. You will willingly serve. You'll give generously and sacrificially to the kingdom work. Why? Because you're treasuring the gospel. This week, I, I came across a little devotional that was talking about Impalas, and so I read it, and like, I didn't really know much about Impalas, so I did a little research. They're from the antelope family. They live in Africa, but these are rather fascinating animals. Do you know that, that uh, Impalas can jump 10 feet high, and they can jump over 30 feet. I'm like, wow. And they kind of have to do this to survive in Africa. And you're like, okay, why are you so excited about the Impalas? Hang with me. All right. It's really interesting that once Impalas, they've caught them and they're going to put them in the zoo, they just put like three foot barriers around them. In fact, here's an example. And the Impalas, they never jump over the barriers. I mean, they could, 
But they never do. They just sit at the zoo and, you know, and all the people are like waving to them and they're just like, doo, 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 doo. they could just jump over instantly. I mean, I watched this one video where they're jumping over a road over cars. I'm like, wow. But you go to the zoo and they're like, doo, doo, doo. we're just laying here. We're, we're not going anywhere. There's that little rock wall there. Can't get over it. Do you know why they don't jump over it? It's not that they can't. It's that impalas will never jump over something if they can't see where they're going to land. And so they just stay there in the zoo. They can easily run away. That's like a lot, a lot of Christians. You know what? It's like, whoa, I don't know how it's all going to work out. So I'm not doing anything. I'm going to do the bare minimum. I'm going to be like the impalas at the zoo. You can wave at me, but I'm not really going to move forward. I, I hear about these opportunities of sharing the gospel or, or serving and some significant opportunities to reach out in our community or, or working with our kids and ministry opportunities, but oh no, I'm not going to do that because I don't know where I'm going to land. I, I see what God is doing, but I, I'm not going to give or I'll just give just a you know, little token amount because I'm just not really sure. Friends, you want to make the most of your life? Treasure the gift of the gospel. As I've been thinking about my own life, what has caused me to move forward and put myself at risk, at least what I thought was a risk, was to treasure the gift of the gospel. It started with me actually coming to know Jesus. I just, a few minutes ago, had the opportunity with this new members class to share my testimony. When I came to Christ, I didn't have answers to all of my questions. I just had enough answers like I knew I was a sinner, and Jesus Christ, I was assured, was the Savior of the world, and I trusted him. My very first time that I uh, ever led a Bible study. I mean, like I was so scared and so nervous. I, I barely knew anything, but I had a, actually in my Bible study, I had all non-Christians and, and one Christian. So it was, it was decent, you know what I'm saying? I was like one step ahead of the dogs. The first time I ever spoke in public, like gave a message, this was crazy and this shouldn't have happened, but it did, was when I was on a summer mission trip at the San Diego Men's Mission. And you had 500 hungry men that had to listen to some college kid before they could eat and I shared the gospel from the word. Was I nervous? Oh, yes, for sure. I'd never done anything like that. First time that I ever led in a ministry or to become a pastor and overseeing different types of ministries. Friend, I felt woefully inadequate. I remember the first time that I, I ever taught Sunday school. I was still a very new Christian, and it was a high school Sunday school, and uh, I was so nervous because all these kids had been Christians a lot longer than me. And like, I'm playing with my pen and my keys. You could ask Karina about it. She's like, you got to, that's why I never carry my keys. I don't have a pen in my hand. I probably do this all the time, right? But it's treasuring the gospel that allows me to move forward. So what are you going to be? Are you going to be the Impala behind the little rock wall because you're not sure? Or are you going to go for it? Friends, I want you to make the most of your life and you do so by treasuring the gift of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...